Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. In this episode, we speak with Amy Godin, author of the new book, The Black Woods, Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondack Frontier. From Saratoga Springs, New York, independent scholar Amy Godin has been writing and speaking about ethnic, migratory, and Black Adirondack history for more than three decades. She has curated several exhibits, including Dreaming of Timbuktu at the John Brown Farm State Historic Site in North Elba, New York. We spoke to Amy about the history surrounding the gift of 120,000 acres of Adirondack land from upstate abolitionist Garrett Smith to 3,000 black New Yorkers in the 1840s. The families who took Smith up on his offer and moved north to settle and farm in the Adirondacks and how the very presence of these black farming families effectively abolitionized the region. Hello, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here, Jonathan. Thank you. Well, I am excited to talk to you about your new book, The Black Woods, Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondack Frontier. Tell us the backstory to this book. I know that we tend to think of New York being a leader in voting rights and things like that, but it wasn't always the case. Uh, Your book talks about a voter suppression restriction against Black New Yorkers in 1821 that set up up a whole chain of events that led to the history you detail in your book. Tell Tell us this history. That legislation of 1821 that the New York Assembly passed rewarded poor white New Yorkers with the vote without any restriction, but Black New Yorkers were suddenly, for the first time, saddled with a draconian restriction of $250 they had to prove they owned in property, in in land, um, or they could not vote, which effectively disenfranchised Black New York. And this was very calculated because abolition was coming up statewide, and this would enable the emergence of a Black a new black electorate that would vote the anti-slavery ticket. And this was something that downstate interests that had strong dealings with the South had no interest in seeing um, emerge. So this was one way to sort of scuttle that in advance and repress that. This is real voter suppression early on before we knew the words for it. And it came as a shock, something quite this strict and terrible to black reformers and white abolitionists in New York. And the horror was that this this would stand and could not be challenged for another 25 years until the next statewide constitutional convention. So that's a whole generation that has to sit on its hands and wait and strategize and lobby for a change of heart among New York's white assemblymen. It comes up again in 1846 on schedule. Again, there's a heated, long debate, racist attitudes among the white delegates, not all of them, but many of them are even more entrenched than ever and have grown more specifically racialized than ever. Now, pseudoscience is emerging that seems to um, justify a tough line on black voting rights and keeping Black New Yorkers, non-citizens. And indeed, when it goes to the state for a public election, a statewide election, except for Northern New York and several counties in Northern New York and a few to the West, 
um, the state resoundingly defeats any hope for a retraction of this voter rights restriction for Black New Yorkers. So the mood in 1846, when the abolitionist and very wealthy land baron Garrett Smith is thinking about this, is very dark, very discouraged. And he comes up with this plan as a way to not just um, invigorate the hope of his Black friends that there could be some way around this, but a way that sort of both accommodates the awful restriction and meets it on its own terms. He says, okay, if you need land to vote, I'm gonna give you land to vote. I have land to spare. I don't need this land. I don't wanna pay taxes on it anymore. Let it be your land. Um, I've got a lot of it. I've got 120,000 acres of it. And I'm going to ask friends of mine in the white and black community to search for eligible grantees who are worthy of this gift. And he gives away 3,000 lots, mostly in 40-acre pieces, to 3,000 Black New Yorkers from all over the state. It's quite a, quite a gift. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. He called it a scheme of justice and benevolence. That's uh, right. And it was ahead of its time. It, it preached affirmative action, environmental, distributive justice, agrarian yes. reform, and community building before any of those concepts were even known or, or even there were even words for them. It's really a forerunner of everything to come, which is another reason I think it should be of such interest to educators today. It's a story that seems lost in the mists of the past, but it has currency for our present moment. And it's hopeful. It suggests these things were in play in New York for a long time and in the sticks, in the Adirondacks yeah, of all places. Exactly, not yeah. just in the city. Yeah, so, that's right. So he invites around 3,000 landless Black New Yorkers to farm in the Adirondacks. Mm -hmm. How many grantees actually go there? Uh, and then this is a big question. Like how many How many actually went to the Adirondacks? Who were the- This is a big question, yes. Families is, and where did they settle and, and what this happened? This is where the um, most accounts of this, which are very, very um, short indeed, usually end. I would say, I've most people said no one came or maybe just a few families came and left. I would wager that uh, my best research tells me that as many as 200 to 250 people came in response to this gift, whether or not they were themselves giftees. A lot of people came as sort of what I'd call fellow travelers who were supporting this effort. Some of them were white people or one of them was white people. John Brown and his family came most famously and they would put it on the map. Um, that also includes women and children who of course can't vote. And it includes as well, because I use a very liberal net here for my own purposes of storytelling. It also includes people who come just before and after the civil war, long after Garrett Smith has lost interest in it, but they come because they wanna be in an integrated safe farming community and they've heard of it and whether or not they know about Garrett Smith, Garrett Smith is what what is who brought the black original pioneers there that created this community and gave rise to the hope among later people that they could be safe there and have a future there. So it's I'm stretching the limit when I say 250, but and most of those don't stay. Most of them go away. Really we're down to 
scores of families in the different sections where they settled that, that, that stay for a while and then we're down to fewer than that. Okay. Is yeah. There, there, I mean, you have so many stories in the book. Is, is there one particular family or one particular story that is illustrative of, of uh, these grantees? Well, there are a couple and they're good because um, they're in different parts of the North Country. The Epps family, um, best known because they were the closest friends to John Brown's family, neighbors, and he strongly hoped that the grantee Lyman Epps would join him when he left the Adirondacks to go fight slavery firsthand where slavery was alive. And he's looking at his neighbors and Lyman Epps is the guy he wants to come. Lyman Epps says, no, I've got a farm here and this is um, where I'm going to stay. This is where I'm fighting my fight. But his family lasts in the region till the 1940s, the early 1940s. They have deep roots. His son lives on, stays and continues to be involved in various types of farm work and outside work. Um, and they also were community builders, which is significant. The Epses helped found the town library. They are active in the Sunday school. They have a, a small family town choir that sing, sings at all kinds of public events. He's a guide who cuts a trail to a pass. He's He serves on town appointments, as do several of the Black grantees. When they come to these fledgling hamlets and communities, everybody goes to work together to serve on the roads committee, the fire committee, the um, tax collection committee, the the elections oversight guy. I mean, really, it's a very integrated scene early on. The other fellow I'd name, who is also just honored recently with a sign that names him, it was a former slave, a self-emancipated slave from Maryland who comes up, eventually makes his way to Troy, and then from there comes into the Adirondacks like almost all of the grantees who gets land, seizes land and thinks, I can do better than this. I'm going to go for a plot nearby. I'll buy something or trade up with Garrett Smith, who's always game to do that. He buys better land in the town of Franklin, which is north of where Lyman Epson, John Brown lives. And he raises a family there. They raise their families there. That family's descendants, some of them are still on the ground there. Some of them are still there. He has a terrific reputation in his community and um, is known in one regional history for having warned away through his neighbors a slave catcher who reportedly came to find him and bring him back to his so-called home in the South. And the word is that John Thomas will is armed and will not go without a fight. He'll, he'll fight to the end and his neighbors tell the slave catcher, what's more, we'll fight for him. So you best get gone. And the guy leaves. Um, that makes it into one county history. And it looks like it might actually have happened from what we can see. That's an exciting story. Are, are anything left of these black settlers farms? Nothing really. Um, maybe some foundations in the woods, um, places where new farms have emerged, but the material culture is very thin. It's very hard to find any relics or signs of the community beyond their names in a range of cemeteries, which is a testament 
again to the integrated nature of this frontier interesting interesting yeah I, I like that you were saying that in essence just the very presence of these black pioneers in the adirondacks you know three people working schooling their kids eventually voting that effectively abolitionized the adirondacks way before the rest of the country yeah it's a strong word but i think the hope of Garrett Smith and of his black agents, really the black land agents didn't, the white land agents did virtually nothing. It was the black land agents who did all the real on the ground work of identifying grantees and visiting them in their homes. Um, their hope was that face-to-face -face dealing would be the thing that changed men's hearts. You had to have community, it had to be small scale rural communities had a much greater promise of that than urban ones, which were catastrophic for black New Yorkers, especially in the city. And once you got people who needed each other, the quality of farming is that you need your neighbors. Farmers need help from their neighbors and farming was the avenue to that mutuality, that common cause that distinguishes that trade. Once you had families getting to know each other, then you would have recognition of each other as people and as equals. And in fact, what I found in my archival searches testified to the, the rightness of that, both in the tax records, which show black farmers going to bat for white neighbors and vice versa in their mutual hope to redeem land that had been seized for back taxes that hadn't been paid. They show enormous knowledge of each other's properties, the improvement of their properties and devotion to each other's farms and a willingness to put their name on depositions and affidavits supporting each other. And the same thing is true after the Civil War when Black veterans are seeking pension relief from the Military Pension Bureau and they need proof that they were indeed very disabled when they got back from the war. So they appeal to their neighbors, mostly white, and say, can you, can you describe who I was before the war and how I am outfitted now to work and disabled? And everybody comes through. Some of these guys looking for help from their neighbors have nine, 10 people going to bat for them. It's very moving. All those records are, are not part of the public record, but they ought to be because they really testify to the integrity and the integration of small town life at mid-century and after wow where, where did where yeah. were you able to find these records uh the national archives in washington have those oh, okay folders and my husband and i went down there and spent a very happy couple of days running through these things that was fun that does sound like fun yeah so, so you had said that as far as you know material or, or physical evidence there's not much left but do you know if there any of the farms or the, the plots of land that were farmed, are any of those still workable land or did any of those? You know, I don't know about that. It's a good question. I think there might be some farming done on one family's estate in, in Franklin or in St. Armand. Most of this land falls away when when the settlers give up or move elsewhere, they don't always give up in farm on farming. Often they move to better farm country and try again in other parts of New York, in Connecticut, even in Vermont, 
even in the in Dakotas, the Dakota Territory, there are black grantees going out to farms. So they are giving up on the agrarian ideal. Um, but when they leave, they leave and their land falls back to the county or the state for unpaid taxes. It goes up for auction. And then you start seeing it getting bought up by um, in richer interests, people who are looking for places to recreate or looking for farms to consolidate into big market-oriented farms. And their old identity is subsistence farms um, is subsumed in this new economic paradigm in the Adirondacks that's privileging recreation and and big hotels and and industry and another kind of settler and looking away increasingly from farming because yeah. farming is better elsewhere. Yep, yep. yep. That being said, that there is a, a revival of some small farms in the Adirondack area and community-supported agriculture in the Adirondacks. What, what can today's farmer in the Adirondack learn from the Black Adirondack farmers of the past? Well, first of all, that farming has always been part of the Adirondack experience, even while the environmental discourse sort of insinuates that farming's time has come and gone and the new celebration of land in the six million acres of the park ought to be recreational and, um, well, let's just stop with that. And envir about environmental sustainability and the gorgeousness of the wilderness on its own terms. There's also a place in that that I don't think has been fully recognized or acknowledged for small scale farming wherever it's possible. And that we're seeing a revival of that that is an Adirondack tradition. So when we look to return to the Adirondacks to how it was, we can look to those small farms as part of the picture along with those gorgeous forests and beautiful rivers and mighty summits. The small farm and the um, small locally oriented market farm and subsistence farm are part of the glorious legacy of Adirondack life. That's one happy, happy thing to think of that I've I love to think about that when I go to farmers markets in the Adirondacks, which are booming right now. And it's wonderful. That is great. That's great. Yeah. I guess the other thing is that farmers in coming back in the day were activists. They were fighting for a, for a principle of equal justice and farmers today in the Adirondacks can look to that heritage and claim it as one of their banners too, and say they're looking toward sustainability and the right use of the land and the relationship of what they're doing to climate change. And so they're they're keeping up a political tradition for farmers as well as um, an economic one. I like that, I like that. Yeah. And uh, it's, not, it's not a major focus of the book, but you do have uh, some discussions of the Underground Railroad. What 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 were some of the connections with the Underground Railroad in the Adirondacks? Oh, that's a really interesting story because I had a great learning curve there. When I started the research, I took it on faith that historians before me who claimed there was no such thing in the Adirondacks were probably right. It had been romanticized and inflated and exaggerated and had more to do with white longing to be part of the civil rights rescue narrative than any real truth. Um, other scholars have proven 
clearly that there was an active underground railroad in the region, whether it went through the area where the black grantees and their followers settled is another question. But I do know that a number of the grantees, when you look deep at their genealogy, were only a generation out of slavery, undoubtedly had family memories and connections to slavery that were very profound. Several families brought elder members of their families to live with them who had been enslaved. Some of the grantees them, themselves have been born enslaved, not just John Thomas, but several others. Um, and so I discovered that the line was really quite porous, though the land that Smith gave away was intended for free black New Yorkers. Nobody was checking who was coming and a number of the free black New Yorkers who came would have been regarded as self-stolen property by their former owners in the South. So their, their status was a little muddy and you have to be really respectful of that muddy line and not insist they were all free or they were all runaways as early histories insisted. It was a lot more complicated than that. Everybody had allegiances to both, both experiences. That's important to see when, when I wrote this book, I think. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, there's a, the, within your new book, um, The Black Woods, there's a great map. Uh, it's a rough guide showing some of the key black pioneers who settled in the area. And uh, just thought you, you obviously know this, that in August, there's a, there was an official New York history sign that was just unveiled celebrating the town of Blacksville. So if someone has, yes. book and has this great map and they're heading to the Adirondacks, what would you recommend they do? Are there places they can visit or? <laughs> There's nothing left to Blacksville except a <laughs> sign. There's nothing left to John Thomas's um, farm that we know of except um, no original building, I don't think, but there is a sign honoring his presence there um, where there used to be a racially derogatorily named Brook. And that name has now been changed to the John Thomas Brook. So that's a very happy um, new installation that just occurred recently. There's the new sign for Timbuktu, the original settlement, um, or enclave. It's not clear whether it was how big it was, but it's what got John Brown to move to his second home in the Adirondacks. There's no sign for Freeman's home, but there should be okay. someday. And there is a Negro Hill, maybe that will become renamed someday. And, um, but that's visiting signs isn't very gratifying. If you're yeah. talking about something more substantial, I'd urge people to go to the John Brown farm and learn what his relationship was to this story. He's not the hero of my book, but he's a big player in it. And also go to the exhibit called Dreaming of Timbuktu, which is about the story that gave rise to my book. If I hadn't done the curating and research for that exhibit, I never would have had an idea to write a book that consumed a whole lot more time than I ever guessed it might. And where is that exhibit? Uh, it's at the John Brown farm in the oh, okay. barn, in the upper level of the barn. And there's also the Underground Railroad Museum in Osable Chasm, which is a terrific place to visit. And I think in a few years, the Adirondack Experience the great museum of the region will have um, a dedicated 
exhibit to Black history in the region and Timbuktu and this whole um, scheme of justice and, of, and benevolence will have a big part in that exhibit, I'm sure. So there'll be several places at the end of the day where people can go. And right now I know there are a lot of groups organizing visits to the region by city people who have not got there before, including a lot of black groups of families, of children, of college students, and that's an exciting change. And the Adirondack Museum is very active in that as well. Oh, that's great. Do you have it's any very cool. for some talks up there as well? Yeah, if you go to my website, which is amygodine.com, there's an events page that lists what's coming up for me. That sounds great. So I, I would encourage anyone who is planning on going to the Adirondacks, even if you're not planning on going, to the, going into the Adirondacks, uh, definitely pick up Amy Godine's new book, The Black Woods, Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondacks Frontier. It was great talking with you, Amy. It was fun. Good questions. Thanks. Oh, thank you. You bet. That was Amy Godin, author of the new book, The Black Woods, Pursuing Racial Justice on the Adirondack Frontier. You can purchase Amy's new book in hardcover or as an ebook at our website, cornellpress.cornell.edu, and use the promo code 09POD to save 30% off. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.